Hello and welcome to another edition of Fides Podcast. My name is Jerry Serino and I'm your host and I'm here with talent on loan from Rush. I'm also here with a very talented pro-life advocate, someone who is fighting for life and doing so with a uh, uh, with great example and with great effect. Uh, my guest is Kelly Luster. Kelly is the, the Outreach and Governmental Engagement Coordinator for the organization And Then There Were None, as well as a, the group Pro Love Ministries. And she's here to talk about uh, both those groups and a number, number of other topics. Kelly, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Yes, my pleasure. So l- let's start with the groups that you're involved in. I do want to ask about uh, sort of your history, your background, as much as you're willing and able to share. I always love to know about people's uh, people's lives as much as they're willing to uh, uh, share with everybody. Um, but tell, let's start with you know the two groups you're a part of. Tell us about those organizations and what they do. And then there were none. Is a ministry founded by a lady named Abby Johnson. If you are a pro-life person, you probably know her. Um, in case you don't, she was a former Planned Parenthood executive director who helped in an ultrasound-guided abortion and became pro-life. When she got out of the abortion industry, she realized that there wasn't anybody really helping other people like her leave the industry, and so she founded. And then there were none. Um, and so we are singularly focused. Our goal is to get work workers out of the abortion industry, um, to transition them into work outside of that. And then in that process to also provide them hope and healing. So we have a three-phase healing process um, where they go on retreats and then also licensed therapists, um, financial advisors, resume writers. And we actually will provide financial help while they're transitioning out of the industry to when they find a new job, because we never want finances to be a reason that they say we have over uh, 640 workers who have left the abortion industry. I am actually a former worker. So that is how I came to be with. And then there were none. Um, I came as a client first and then came on staff. Um, So the other group is called Pro-Love Ministries. That was also founded by Abby Johnson. Um, When she was doing her pro-life work, she realized that there are great things in the pro-life movement, pregnancy resource centers, for example, sidewalk advocates, but there were gaps in the movement where women were not receiving care. And so she founded Pro-Love Ministries. Our main project is one called Love Line, which is a crisis line where women contact us We find out what their needs are, and then we provide wraparound case management care. We connect them with local resources, and if we can't find local resources, we become that resource. Um, And then uh, Check My Clinic is another big one of our projects, Um, and that is a comprehensive database of all the abortion providers in the United States. And so you can click on your state, find your abortion provider, and then see the actual health inspection reports on that facility. That's the good news. The bad news is abortion, the abortion industry is not regulated or mandated to report or inspect. And so many of those inspection reports are from like in the state of Virginia, the last time it was um, inspected was 2018. And in 2018, every abortion provider failed their inspection report. Um, But you can at least see those and see um, kind of what's happening in those areas. Yeah. I, I love how, you know, the inspections are so important for every other area of medicine except the abortion industry, right? Those, those right. seem to always get a, 
get a pass and even though they don't pass inspection and you know if these people cared about women like they say they do and they don't if they did they would be concerned about clinics that women are going to that aren't mm-hmm. up to standards right i mean it's it's important Absolutely. it's important for every healthcare facility to have and meet meet the standards that are put forward. Okay, so um, I, I want to talk to you about you. Know, you had mentioned your background and how you know you were a you were a client of, and then there were none. Uh, the organization that Abby Johnson, who who does who's doing phenomenal work, uh, is uh, by the way, and you know it was a movie about her, her story, and everything. So tell me about your story. How did you become? A, what were you doing at Planned Parenthood? How did you become a client? And you know, take me on that journey. Sure. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, um, but some of my first memories were shame. I remember at three, four years old doing inappropriate things with dolls and not typical like kid exploration stuff, but actual sexual acts. Um, and then Fast forward a little bit. Um, in elementary school, I was teased and picked on and really awkward and uncomfortable. So that kind of compounded that. When I got to high school, had some friends that said, hey, let's go to this party. I snuck out. Didn't even know that kids actually did that kind of thing, but they said, let's do it. So we snuck out, went to the party. Um, and at that party, I was raped. And that after that, I told my friends what had happened to me and, and nobody believed me because the boy that did it was a very popular boy. And they said, you know, why would he have to do that to you? And uh, and then I went to my youth pastor, told her and she said, well, if you'd never snuck out and gone to that party, that would have never happened. So that shame that I felt as a three, four year old child was compounded. And I continued feeling that um, through high school. And so I went to the place where I didn't feel shame, where I felt love, unfortunately, which was in the arms of young boys. And by the time I was 15, I was pregnant. And I went and had my first abortion. My boyfriend's mother drove me to the abortion um, facility, dropped me off with a wad of cash and said, I'll be back in a couple of hours to pick you up. I walked in a nationally ranked tennis player. I walked in a straight A student. I walked in a regular church attender. And when I walked out, I knew that God could not forgive me or love me because I knew that I had killed my child. And so I went down a path of destruction, everything from drugs, domestic violence, eating disorders, homosexuality, promiscuity, you know, pornography, you name it. I tried to cover that shame and fill that hole was living, um, running drugs and working in bars and seeing my friends die and was just kind of tired of the chaos of that lifestyle. So I looked for a job and saw that our local women's clinic was hiring. And I went to where the ad was and it was where I'd had my first abortion. And I walked in and I got hired on the spot and hired as a receptionist. And um, this was 20 years ago. And as the receptionist, I got paid $18 an hour. And quickly realized that that was because I was going to be doing more than reception work. I was um, in charge of editing the magazines in the reception area. So any picture of a happy couple or a woman who was pregnant or a minivan or anything might cue that motherly instinct, we would cut it out of the magazine. And when men would come, now in the state of Virginia at that time, there was a 24-hour waiting period. So you would come the first day, have your initial consultation, and then come back the second day for your appointment. And guys would often come with their girlfriends or wives on that first appointment. And when they were waiting in the waiting room, we would turn the heat very, very hot or the air conditioning very, very cold because when she came out from her appointment, we didn't want him there waiting for her. 
Because if he won't even wait for you and support you in this appointment, what makes you think he's going to support you for a child? So it was just backing up that narrative. Um, I also dispensed Valium as the receptionist. So when a woman would come in, the first thing we would, and we would take her money. And then the very next thing we would do on procedure day is give her Valium. Um, I was the one who was in charge of doing that. And then my final job, oh, I also dispensed the chemical abortion. So if a woman was coming in for chemical abortion, I would give her the abortion pills. My final job was the recovery room. And whether women came in shouting their abortion or whether they came in really conflicted about what they were about to do, in that room, every woman was sad. Every single woman was crying or sad. And that room is what made me leave the abortion industry because the number of women that were in there with perforated uteruses, perforated bowels that were hemorrhaging from their appointment. Now we did a procedure, um, we did a, a medication appointment, which most surgical appointments nowadays are. So it is a cocktail of drugs, fentanyl being one of the drugs. I tell people if you've ever had knee surgery or like a complex dental surgery or colonoscopy, you understand what twilight sedation is. So you don't really remember that day. You know, you certainly don't remember the procedure. And so these women would come in, they would get that sedation, we would do their procedure. And then if they were hemorrhaging in the waiting room, we would take them back to the procedure room, give them some more drugs, fix them up bring them back to the recovery room, 20 minutes on the dot, hand them their cookie, their juice, their clothes, and send them out the door and never tell them what had happened to them. And so remember, I had had an abortion there. And so I began to think, gosh, did that happen to me? And I realized that we were not just ending their motherhood that day, you know, that pregnancy that day. But for many of these women, they would never be able to become mothers again. And so I left the abortion industry. Um, it took about 15 years for me to become pro-life because I was still wounded. I was still, you know, confused about myself and I was still running from the Lord, um, but then had a radical uh, transformation and, and salvation from the Lord where he, he saved me from a domestic violence situation, literally saved my life with my father's prayers. And I, you know, turned my life around and got saved. And then through that process of um, learning that I was loved, I began to be able to love other people and began to value life. Um, and then it took a couple of years of just healing and process. And I was working in a pregnancy center and we played the movie Unplanned as a fundraiser. And I saw my story on the screen and was like, wow, this is an area of my life that I've never really gotten healing. And I would talk about domestic violence and the eating disorders and all of those things, but I never really talked about working in the abortion industry because that was kind of the unpardonable sin. Um, and so when I saw that, I said, this is something I need to get healing for. And so I um, went to the March for Life and met the team and came on as a client. And then not too long after that, came on staff. Wow. That, that's an amazing story. It, it's a, it's a, I didn't know all that. I mean, just for those listening, I mean, I, I knew a, a small amount of it and I didn't know that whole story. It's an amazing story. It, it's, it, it's yeah, there's so much of it. I was, I was going to, you know, right. You know, thinking of questions, everything, you know, I said, okay, how am I going to get to all this? But I, I think what, what besides the obvious of, of how you, you know, turned your life around, which is very po possible to do because the pro-life mm -hmm. world is full of people like you to one degree or another, right? No one 
is judging. No one is pointing your fingers and saying, well, you did this in the past, so you're not allowed here. Um, it's only the pro-life world that is helping women like you, right? Who, who went through tragedy and struggle there, you know, Planned Parenthood is not saying, oh, you came from an abusive relationship or, or you were raped. Let us help you. Let us give you counseling. They're not doing that. Um, but so <laughs> I, I know we knew, we knew a lot about, you know, from Abby Johnson's talks about, you know, the quotas and things like that. I did not know any of that about cutting out magazines or turning the heat way up to get the man out of there. You know, it, it just stuns me as a, a total manipulation of women, you know, Absolutely. from the people that are supposed to be, you know, supposedly caring about women. And it's, it's really sick to me. And I, and I love that you're out there talking about that and letting people know, um, yeah, it's it's amazing. It is amazing. I don't know what else to say. Uh, so so we're in a post Roe world. Right? Roe v. Wade was over overturned um, from the Supreme Court. Uh, what does the post Roe world look like? Because obviously states are taking action one way or the other. Uh, you know what is the what is the fight still uh, that's out there? You know. I am super grateful that Roe versus Wade was overturned. You know, I'm definitely glad that there is now no longer a mandate that abortion is legal and, you know, without exception in our country. But the reality is, is the abortion fight has gotten harder, to be perfectly honest with you, because now it has gone state by state where on one hand, that is good because a state like Texas can say, we don't want to pay for this. We don't want this in our state. But the bad side of that is a state like New Mexico now has over 80% of the women that are coming to their state for abortions are not from the state of New Mexico. The state of New Mexico, for instance, and this, they're a great, they're kind of the forefront of this whole argument. There's a town um, called Las Cruces. And not too long ago, they closed down their last abortion facility. Well, there are now four abortion facilities in that city, and the governor has pledged to put $10 million to build a new facility, another facility in this small conservative town. And so it becomes very difficult if you are, let's say, a sidewalk advocate standing outside of that facility. And these are not women from your city. These are women from states over who have traveled, who their company has paid for them to come or some outside organization has paid for them to come, you know, and it's this commitment that is very difficult on the sidewalk to turn them away. And then you also have the other aspect of there's, you're not in the state where they are to give them the resources that they need. And so again, it makes it very difficult. So it's, Definitely polarized our, our country as far as where you can go for surgical abortion. The other issue that is, in my opinion, far more scary is the chemical abortion. 
which many people are kind of starting to hear about it. It's been going on for years. I've had a chemical abortion. I actually used to dispense a chemical abortion 20 years ago. So this isn't something new, but this has definitely become the more um, prevalent form of adoption, not adoption, excuse me, of abortion. Over 56% of abortions are done with the chemical abortion. And what that is, is it is currently, it is a two-step process where you take a set of, uh, take mifeprestol, which is a, drug that basically blocks the progesterone that goes to your baby. So it starves your baby. And then 24 to 48 hours later, you take a second set of pills, mesoprostol, which causes you to deliver the baby. Now this is being done at home. This is being done without the supervision of a doctor. If you read the labels on these drugs, it mandates that you have an ultrasound before you do this and you have an ultrasound seven days after doing this to make sure that your uterus is clear. None of those two things are happening. Women are getting these drugs from overseas. They're telling them with the time they order them that they are nine weeks and five days pregnant because technically you have to be under 10 weeks. And then it is taking four to six weeks for those drugs to be delivered. And so they are now 13, 14 weeks having this happen at home. They are being instructed by the abortion industry that if something goes wrong, to go to the emergency room and tell them that you're having a miscarriage, not to tell them that you have taken this cocktail of drugs, because there's no way to prove that that is what caused this. So the abortion industry is covering their butt, basically. We are already seeing women die. We had a 19-year-old from Canada Last week that it was found that she died. We had a young, another young lady this week who died. Women are dying from this procedure and the abortion industry is not being held liable for it. Now, there is a current legislation that's going on to try to make Mifeprex, which is the, the first round of the pill, um, illegal. And everybody is like, yay, when that happens, the abortion, chemical abortion is going to go away. What they do not realize is there is already a protocol where you eliminate that first step of the process and you take more of the misoprostol. You do it in a different fashion. So instead of taking it in your mouth, you insert it. That process, instead of taking 20 to 30 hours for those contractions to start and for your uterus to be emptied, it now takes 20 to 30 minutes. And it is very violent. It is very traumatic. It is very risky. It is very damaging. And these women are not delivering a baby who is dead. They are delivering a live baby because there has been nothing to kill the baby. And so we are seeing women show up with babies in their hand at pregnancy centers and saying, nobody told me this was going to happen. Nobody told me I was going to see this. And so the trauma that is happening from these procedures. Remember I was talking about the, the chemical, you know, where you take this drugs where you don't remember it. These women remember the entire thing and they're not going to a location to do this and have it done to them. They are doing it to themselves in their home where they have to return to the scene of the crime every day. And so the trauma from it emotionally is so much greater than it is with a surgical abortion. And so on one hand, we are cheering because Roe versus Wade was overturned. But on the other hand, this battle has become very difficult and very um, behind the scenes. 
It's no longer your abortion facility on the corner. It is now your CVS, your Walgreens, your Rite Aid that are dispensing these medications. Your children are getting them in the mail or getting them sent to a PO box and getting them there. And they are having these abortions in your bathroom. And so it is um, very sombering. It is a very sombering thing um, what's currently going on with the abortion industry. And they're not being regulated or inspected. And so it's even worse. Um, everything that's going on. Yeah, that's powerful. And it's, it's so sad to me, the, the way human beings are being mistreated by those that are supposed to be looking out for them, whether it's the government, you know, agencies, or it's groups that are, you know, supposedly helping women. Uh, they're not doing either, either of those. Uh, so the, the, this was a good segue into my last question and uh, and that is the question of how far do you think that the left will go? Because we've had people on the left, the former governor of Virginia, of Virginia, your your state, who who talked about, hey, what do we do if a baby survives abortion? Uh, what do we do? Well, we talk about with the doctor, and in other words, we kill it. We've had you know the left unable to vote for born alive acts uh, throughout throughout the country in various states. Um, how far, how far will they go? Yeah, I actually testified yesterday in Virginia for the Born Alive Act, and it was voted down in special committee five to three because they didn't think that that was something that they should get involved in. Um, so I think that we will see it get worse and worse. I think it's only going to get worse. I think five years ago, if you had said it was going to be where it is now, nobody would believe you. And I think that if you can believe a child that is born alive after an abortion doesn't deserve life-saving care, well, what makes you think a one-month-old baby deserves life-saving care or a five-month? And that was the argument that they made yesterday was if this baby is born alive, and the parents do not want to give it life-saving care, then why should the doctor give it life-saving care? <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, I understand that. I mean, I understand that. I don't understand it, period. But you could make an argument about it in the case of if somebody's trying to have an abortion and it doesn't go through. But what's to make that any different than a woman who has the baby and realizes, oh my goodness, I don't want to do this anymore and they want to kill it. Or somebody who has a two-year-old and didn't know how hard it was going to be and says, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to kill it. So I think that we are going to see it get further and further and further. We're already seeing euthanasia. The state of Vermont just now said, you don't have to be a resident to come in and get euthanasia. And euthanasia is no longer for the terminal person who's, you know, it's anybody. It could be mental issues. So we are going further and further and further in that direction. And I am concerned for where we are seeing um, our country go. I'm concerned for where it's going to be for our children. I'm definitely concerned about women. And I, I, I believe that women are going to be dying with everything that's currently going on. Um, we know children are dying. You know, we know that babies are being killed, but I think that we're going to see an increase of women dying. And it is very alarming for sure. Yeah, it is. And it's a great point about euthanasia. I was actually going to bring that up and, and then you did. It, it's happening big time in Canada. I've had guests on that have said, said, watch out America. It's coming to you as well. And it, and it already is, but it's big time in Canada. 
and yeah, I agree. If, if you could, you know, what happens when a baby is born and they find out it has a disease or, or something, you know, is physically wrong with the baby that they didn't know at what point. Yeah. And, and I, you know, look, we're in a world where, where we have, you know, the New York legislature that gives a standing ovation when they sign a bill allowing abortion up, up until birth. We have politicians, as I mentioned, talking about killing a baby afterwards. And we live in a world where the left, the same people that support all this think that men could get pregnant. So it wouldn't, it's not anywhere out of the realm of possibility that they will say at a one-year-old, the six-month-old, well, you know, goodbye, good, get rid absolutely. of it. It's I've, absolutely possible. I was sitting with the um, the uh, chief of staff for our Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, who's absolutely amazing last night. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that she just had left a meeting where there were 25 mothers whose children had died from fentanyl. And those mothers were talking to legislators, asking for stricter penalties for drug dealers. Not drug users, drug dealers. And those senators told these moms, well, we need to be worried about the drug pushers too. And they literally looked them in the face and said, we don't want to penalize them. We don't want to hurt them. Sorry, all of your children died, but we need to take care of the drug dealers. And that's how we are in this upside down, weird, crazy society that just Right up is down and right is left. You know, it doesn't make any sense how on one hand we're concerned about drug dealers, but we're not concerned about babies, you know, and I just, it's time for us to pray. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's for sure. Because it is, huh, it is a mess. (laughs) Yeah, it is a mess. And, and, you know, this is me commenting. This is, you don't, Kelly, you don't have to agree or disagree. So this is me commenting, you know, it's we're you're absolutely right. Everything is backwards. We're letting criminals out of out of jail. We're not punishing them. Uh, we're not holding people accountable. Right. We're concerned about other countries borders, but not our own. It, it's it, it's crazy. It, it's literally 10, 15 years ago, we would be laughing at this and saying, come on, no, 130 genders. Come on. You know, right. women in or men in women's sports. No, come on, you're, you're yeah. crazy. But yet, it's all real. It's all very real. Uh, well, Kelly, great testimony. It, it, that's everything. This was very, very powerful. Very powerful. Uh, and and I really applaud you. I'm sure it's not always easy to to talk about these things. Uh, it has to be tough. I'm 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 sure it was even tougher for you to sort of convert. Uh, to this. I know that it, it takes a lot to do that. Uh, so uh, love it. So I'm scrolling for those watching, I'm scrolling Pro Love Ministries uh, website at the bottom. Um, any other ways people can connect with your organizations and support them financially, uh, personally, if they want to get involved? Yeah. So Pro Love Ministries is the um, Pro Love Ministries. There's also prolove.com, which is, and then there were none. We definitely are, we are a national organization. And so we need help with our crisis line has 
blown up, as you can imagine. And so we need help with people answering the crisis line and people doing intake and people doing case management. Um, we certainly need finances. So, you know, we're kind of footing this whole country by ourselves. And thankfully, we've got Abby, who is an amazing spokesperson for our ministry. Um, but we definitely could use your help um, with finances. And just let people know that we're here. That's the other thing, you know, getting the awareness that there are organizations to help. There are organizations, if you're a woman in crisis. There are organizations, if you're somebody that stands on the sidewalk, you know, and you have a worker that wants to come out, abortionworker.com is the easiest thing to tell them. Um, we are here. We are trying to end abortion from the inside out. We're trying to make it, you know, have no workers. We're also trying to make it unthinkable. And we also testify for legislation. So we're trying to make it illegal. We're trying to get it on every front, um, hit it from all sides and do the best that we can to save moms and save babies. Fantastic. Really great stuff. Great organizations. Great people. Great story. Uh, Kelly, love, love what you're doing. I'm glad we, we were able to connect. It took a, it took a few months and, yeah. and ultimately we did. So it was, this was fantastic. It's um, just been a pleasure to have you on and sharing your story. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Fide's podcast. Please check out all my different podcasts and all the different podcast apps on YouTube, on Rumble, and on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern on rightamericamedia.com. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time. It's